0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Even though Scott Mercier quit professional cycling rather than dope, he was curious how he might have performed.
1: I still am to this day. I won't say that's a regret that I have, because it's certainly not, but I'm curious, what was my potential in that environment if I'd done the full cocktail of drugs?
0: Mercier lives in Basalt, and his new book is called Win True. True. Today, how he got into cycling by accident, or because of an accident, really. Then a high school senior from Colorado Springs makes her voice heard on a national stage.
2: This is not a small love you hear. This is a large love, a passion for kissing learning on its face.
0: And students whose school district might disappear.
3: My name is Sajata i from Denver, Colorado. CPR News is one of the best news sources around town, and it doesn't only inform me about the happenings in Colorado or even in the United States, but all around the world. I'm Chloe. I live in Denver, and I donate to CPR Monthly because it's amazing, in-depth journalism, storytelling. It keeps me informed, and it's a great way to start and end the
4: day. Members help make it all possible. Thank you.
0: It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Cyclist Scott Mercier of Basalt, Colorado, was at the top of his sport 25 years ago when he opted to quit rather than dope. The riders around him, who did use performance-enhancing drugs, peddled on to fame and glory, hollow, though they might have been. Mercier went on to the world of business, a journey he writes about in his new book, Win True. And Scott, thanks for being with us. My pleasure, Ryan. So the 1990s were an apex for you in terms of cycling. You competed in the Olympics in Barcelona. You were ranked among the top five Americans. The U.S. postal team tapped you to ride alongside names like Tyler Hamilton and George Hincappy. I'll say that Lance Armstrong would join the team the year after you left. But the doping that emerged ruined this for you, and I'm, I'm wondering if I could have
1: you read a little something from the book. Absolutely. I knew in my heart that doping, and by extension cheating, was not who I was. The sport that I had wholly loved since I was a child, settling at 10-speed up steep mountain road and dreaming of Olympic glory, was now taking a sly side road, fueled by illicit drugs and situational ethics. I didn't recognize professional cycling anymore, and I didn't recognize myself in it.
0: I'm curious what doping overtures sounded like
1: and looked like. And It was just very matter of fact. Uh, Pedro Salaya was our team doctor, and he had this calendar with about a two-week heavy block of intense training of long endurance miles with hard, intense interval efforts. Hmm. And he just was very matter of fact with his calendar, where he'd have these dots on there, these little circles that he'd drawn in, and, and stars over a two week block. And I asked him what those represented, and he said the the dots are the pills, and they were between two and three on each day, and the stars were the injections. And it was almost like just a regular business meeting. He he reached into his briefcase and and pulled out a bag of these green pills, and in there was also these glass vials filled with this clear liquid. And I and I'll never forget because he asked me, um, I, I said, Peter, what are these? And he said, These are steroids. You'll go strong like wolves. And um I was nervous. He said, You know how to give yourself an injection, right? And I didn't. So he explained, he kind of was in shock that a professional cyclist didn't know how to give himself an injection. Wow. So he showed me what to do, how to break off the tip of this glass vial and He said to go buy some syringes, very matter-of-fact. Wow, okay. And so that was my introduction. I'm blown away,
0: yes, by how institutional, how overt it was. And I know that cycling was more than just a sport for you. So how wrenching was it to leave?
1: It was hard. um, And it became harder after I'd left and and to see the success of my colleagues and and teammates going on to, to win the tour. But When I made the decision, it wasn't actually that hard um, because I just was faced with a stark choice where I'm either going to have to do something that I'm not comfortable doing if I want to continue in my career. You know, I talk about how I felt like I was too weak to dope. And, you know, most people consider that to be a strength, the ability to say, no, for me, I really looked at it it as like, I'm just too weak to live this lie. I can't live the lie. And I did give it some thought. And I have this image still in my mind 25 years later. Uh, It's it's almost exactly 25 years later that I made the decision not to go down this path where I just envisioned the toilet. You know how it starts swirling and swirling and swirling. And and I kind of envisioned I was in this toilet and how do you get off? And so I I didn't see a way for me to compete, even though the, the team had made it clear that they thought I was a valuable member, and I was offered a contract for, for 98 if I wanted it, but I knew that I was not going to be able to continue competing in, 99, in 98 without succumbing to the drugs.
0: Do you think of that as a strength now?
1: Yeah. Um, right. It's a hard decision, right? And it's one that very few people, only one other guy on the team at that time, Darren Baker, made the same decision. Mm-hmm. And when you're a pro athlete, it's a hard living, but it's also really cool. It's like the best job in the world. I don't know, maybe being on radio is just as cool. <laughs> but, um, but I always, I mean, it happened so late for me. I'd already graduated from college. I never thought it was going to turn into anything. I just thought it was going to be one short summer with my brother, with my little brother in Telluride. We were camping and racing. I never really envisioned it turning into a career. And I always just did it because it was It was awesome, right? It's a great way to make a living. You have to travel. You're getting paid. You're riding your bike on places like the Great Wall of China or Australia, or my first race was 15 days throughout Mexico. So you're doing these unique experiences, and that's still what I cherish to this day.
0: Uh, It's fascinating to me that cycling began for you because of a really bad knee injury when you were 12 on a different set of wheels. How did too too much speed and, I guess, rehabilitation lead to a career on a bike?
1: Well, there was a huge gap between the two. I'd blown out my knee. I'd shattered the kneecap and torn the patella tendon when I was in sixth grade. Um, My parents were hippies, and we'd gone down to uh, Natterita, Colorado, a really, really small town to, to pick asparagus. And we grew up Catholic, so we went to church. And I remember I couldn't wait to get out of the church, so I sprinted out of the church after the ceremony, grabbed my skateboard, and started doing S turns down this relatively steep hill. And I I remember there was this girl running down the sidewalk on the side of me. And like young boys aren't geniuses, so I thought, I can't (laughs) let this girl beat me down this hill. So I started going straight. And I must have been going 20, 25 miles an hour, and my board started getting the speed wobbles. And then I made a really, my second really stupid decision where I decided to jump off. Um, I was going way too fast, so I, I jumped off, and the, the doc said that the impact from my foot at that speed actually is what tore the tendon. And then I piled my kneecap into the pavement, <gasps> and I, I mean, I grabbed my knee, and where your kneecap is supposed to be was concave. And since the muscle is from the torn tendon, it was halfway up. My kneecap was halfway up my thigh. Okay. All right.
0: Maybe we should have had a
1: disclaimer, (laughs) Scott. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the graphics. Um, But so part of the recovery at that point was they said, look, cycling will be really good. It's a great way to rebuild muscle. It's non-impactful. Once you start getting enough mobility on the legs so my dad or my stepdad bill who later got me into cycling as well he that was my first pro contract really where he said I'll pay you 200 bucks to ride your bike from telluride ride over and back huh. every day and I would just it was 22 miles round trip and I would make an adventure of it'd probably take me seven eight hours we'd stop along the way and there wasn't a whole lot of traffic then so it was pretty safe and my buddy tad Craig and I would just we'd ride our bikes and Play, you know, for rocks in the river and go climbing around stuff, and that was how we spent every day that summer.
0: I love that you frame that as your first contract. In other words, your own yeah. your own family was, was paying you for the rehabilitation, huh? Yes, yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. Uh, it's also lovely to hear the historic mining town of Ophir evoked, Over, Colorado.
1: Yeah, it's still near and dear. We, my dad, recently passed away. My my dad Bill, and he put a bunch of first ascents in the Ofer wall, and we actually just scattered his ashes at the base of the Ofer wall. So uh, I guess there's another memory for me with Ofer.
0: Um, Scott Mercier, we talked about the difficulty of leaving cycling. How hard was it to break into professional racing when it was not just a a relative paying you?
1: Um, That actually came relatively easily. You know, I had a a very, very quick ascent and my Former coach Chris Carmichael said he actually doesn't know of another Olympic athlete that made any sport as quickly as I did. And I just <laughs> went from that one summer. I had a one, I bought a one-way ticket with some of my graduation money to Bangkok. So I was like, well, instead of traveling for two years, I'm going to come back and, and give this racing a try. And I made the national team two months, three months after getting back uh, from my trip to Asia. And then I thought, gosh, I I need to give this a try. And the next year, I made the Olympic team. And in the domestic racing scheme for the stage races in particular and the climbing ones, I was almost always the top amateur. And so I had three different offers when I um, decided to turn pro with Saturn in in 1993. And I thought I was in heaven. It was a $2,000 a month contract plus all of my equipment and travel. Um, I was 24. I mean, I thought it was the greatest thing in the world.
0: Well, I've got to say, you're making it sound way too easy. So let me throw in some more of your <laughs> some more of your history. Okay. Uh, in 1990, in the Coors classic, uh, which I think is the first time you competed at the professional level, you taped cardboard in your spokes to mimic the aerodynamic disc wheels that the pros use in time trials. And that's right. Your bike seat fell off on the climb up the Colorado National Monument.
1: Yeah. I, um, a friend of mine, Brian Miller, who was a pro in Telluride, had told me that a way to create a disc wheel, because I didn't have any money, <laughs> um, was to cut some cardboard out and tape it to the wheels and it'd be more aerodynamic. So I did that. That was on River Road in Grand Junction. And I got third. That was my first race amongst the pros. I was a, a high-level amateur than a Category 2, but we got to race with the pros. And I got third in that time trial. And then the road race, which was two laps around the monument. So it's going to be about 70 miles. Oh, wow. I attacked the field, formed the winning breakaway. So there was about five of us in this group. And, and the winner was going to come from this group. And then my saddle fell off. And I just, uh, I didn't have the bike handling ability. And I needed the saddle. I didn't have enough money to go spend 100 bucks on our new saddle. So I turned around and got it and then just rode to the start, finish. And that was my, and then I disappeared for seven months. That was 1990, uh, the summer that I graduated from Berkeley.
0: I appreciate the picture of you going to fetch the bike seat because you needed it. You could <laughs>
1: <laughs> I needed it and I put it in my pocket. Cycling jerseys you have three pockets in the back. I put it yeah. in my pockets and somehow got around to the start-finish and then uh took off. I I guess, you know, you mentioned about how tough it was Ryan. And getting the, the pro contract wasn't that tough, but the training that I was doing was tough where I would I would literally do intervals up the airport road and right over and over and over until I would vomit. Right. And, and mm-hmm. so, so the, the physical suffering that I put myself through um, there was just something driving me to keep pushing. And then after that, I would still got to do two or three more. So I was just really punishing my body. And I think I was just old enough and that I'd kind of grown into my body that it responded and I just kept getting stronger and stronger.
0: And you make the U.S. Olympic team in Barcelona in 1992. Your hometown of Telluride gives you an impromptu send-off parade that involves a stolen yeah. a stolen fire truck?
1: <laughs> sort of, yeah. Uh, my dad was a volunteer fireman um, for the Telluride Fire Department. And I don't know whose idea this was, but <laughs> either him or one of his buddies went down there and grabbed the fire truck and drove it up to our house at the base of tomboy road or engine pass and we were just having this big party my mom had bought a keg and you know i was the first olympian in the town I- ironic that it was a summer olympian and then somebody's just like let's go drive around so about 50 of us jumped on this uh fire truck and they the sirens are going and we've got an american flag and we're just driving through the town with the horns going and the sirens and. It was an impromptu celebration for the whole town. Um, and all my friends were there. And it was it was just, it was a blast. Did
0: your dad get in trouble?
1: Uh, I don't think so. Okay. Uh, I know right. that a cop did come up and say, you need to move the fire truck because emergency vehicles need to get through here. And one of his buddies looks at the cops and says, what are you talking about? We've got the fire department right here. This
0: is the emergency so, vehicle. Yes, that was basically his point. Scott Mercier of Basalt became an elite cyclist by accident, or maybe I should say because of an accident. A bike was his route to rehabilitation after a childhood spill from a skateboard. Mercier eventually landed on the U.S. Postal Service professional cycling team just as doping culture took over, a culture he rejected. His new book is Win True. Let's go a ways back to 1992 and his challenges at the Olympics in Spain. You get to Barcelona, and it it doesn't go very well. What happened?
1: I guess I'd say it was a a train wreck. Um, And it was just a culmination of error after error. The first was about a week before our team captain was out training on his own, just on a recovery ride, and slipped in some gravel crashed and broke his femur. So he, this is literally five, six days, or maybe a week before our event. So we had a guy coming over that was very talented, very good, but we'd never trained together. So we didn't have any of the alternates training with us so that in an event like this, we would know how each other rides. But I'll never forget, we're we're warming up. The spare bikes are on the car. There was only one water bottle on each bike, which I thought was odd. Hmm. And I was the new guy. This was only the second time I'd, I'd done a team time trial. So I didn't really feel I had the wherewithal to be helping us with strategy. And our strategy was bad, where we thought we'd start out slow and pick it up. But within the first 25 kilometers of our race, we'd had three wheel changes and a bike change. So we were already way off the back. We were we got passed by the French team, which was three minutes behind us, before 25 kilometers into the race. So we were already out of it. George Hincapie's spare bike had one water bottle. It was over 90 degrees with 90 plus percent humidity. So by halfway through, to 50 kilometers in, he's out of water. A couple of k later, he's off the back. Then our Nate Schaefer had a bad day, where he about 60 k into it, and he has to finish with three riders. Just for one reason or another, it was on a bad day, so we would end up waiting for him. We go up. I remember going about this climb that we'd normally be in the big rain, going maybe 18 miles an hour. Instead, we're in one of our easiest gears, going about nine miles an hour, just nursing made along. Because if you don't finish with three riders, you're disqualified. Wow. It was a nearly identical course to where we won in Altoona, Pennsylvania. Nearly identical in terms of the climbs. The length was within two meters of it. And we were 16 minutes slower. And it was, uh, to this day, one of the most embarrassing and humiliating uh, professional days of my life.
0: You write in Win True that, and this is the age of doping, that you were going so slow at one point.
1: Oh, I was doing the paper route. Yeah.
0: It felt you might have been riding on a beach cruiser. In your words, that's what happens when you compete clean with dopers. The chemicals in their bodies allow them to go at a harder pace for a longer period of time. Were you ever curious what you might do on dope, like how good you might be?
1: I still am to this day. That, right? That's uh, I won't say that's a regret that I have because it's certainly not. But I'm curious, like how good works what was my potential in that environment if I'd done the full cocktail of drugs? And people will tell you that, you know, the steroids will give you a two or three, maybe 4% increase in performance, but the EPO was the game changer and that you could get 10% or more improvement in performance. And I kind of used as a, as a comparison when I was selected to the world championship team in 1994, I'd still, that was only my second year as a professional. So I'd been racing for just over three years. And I had an average heart rate in Sicily, Italy, during this event of 190, 191 for nearly an hour. And I finished in 16th place in the world championships clean. Uh, I was three and a half percent from being a world champion. And if you think of the way EPO works, at that time there wasn't a test for the drug itself. What they would test you for was your hematocrit, which is uh, how much oxygen are you carrying in your blood. And for endurance athletes, the higher your percentage is, the faster you're going to be able to go. And I I was I would have been what they call a high responder, meaning that since I had a, such a low hematocrit, I would have gotten a pretty big boost from from the EPL, So wow, I, okay. I guess that's a long-winded answer to, well, no, it, it, yeah, yeah, I'm curious, and I'm still curious. Well, you quit the
0: U.S. postal team rather than dope, and you and your wife Mandy spent some time trying to find your footing off the bike. You managed restaurants in Hawaii for your father. You were mopping bathrooms while your former teammates, now led by Lance Armstrong, were winning Tours de France. Uh, But you have been called the anti-Lance. You've become a motivational speaker, uh, sharing your story of not doping. I wonder why you decided to write this book now.
1: Well, the the timing of the book had more to do with just getting it done, and it was a relief to get it done. Um, Lorena and I, Lorena Davis, my co-author, and I have been working on it for, for nearly 10 years, and we'd work on it for a while and take a break and work on it for a while and take a break. And when I was invited to go to West Point, uh, and I've been there about eight or nine times as part of their character development program now.
0: You're talking about the military academy.
1: That, yeah, that's right. And some of the staff there said, you really need to write a book and have your, and I said, well, I've been working on one. I'm not a professional author. And they said, your, your story is really powerful and we would encourage you to, to finish it, get it on paper. That was in 2018, And then we just, Lorena and I just sat down and said, we said, we're going to just grind this out. You know, we've, we both have careers and families and um, we're both getting our education. I'm working on a master's degree. She's working on a PhD. And it's just, we just finally got it done. So the timing was merely coincidental.
0: What are you getting your master's in?
1: Well, so I'm, I'm working on a master's in finance um, through the Harvard Extension program where they... It's for career people. Hmm. And part of my studies of longevity show that not just being physically fit, but having uh, sharp mental acuity later in life, if you can remain intellectually curious and constantly learning, that it leads to better outcomes. Um, And I work in finance. So I just thought, well, I'm just going to work on this. And I take one class a semester and uh, I've got two to go.
0: I'm loath to make this interview very much about Lance Armstrong, but I, I know that you have talked over the years. You've gone for bike rides with him around Aspen. Are you friendly?
1: Are you friends? No, we're not. We're not friends. Um, we reconnected. We weren't friends wearing were the peloton, and we're not really friends now. And I, I uh, he's just not my favorite person. I don't. I don't find him to be a, a man of character, and he's not somebody I want to spend time with. Tell me about
0: your most recent bike ride before we go, Scott Merce here.
1: My most recent bike ride was yesterday. My daughter is visiting from Washington D.C., and she and I rode up uh, West Sopras Creek, and it was a it was like Emerald Drain. Uh, there were actually elk sitting in the the fields outside of West Sopras Creek. We went up to the top, and there was just this magnificent view of snow covered soprus. And uh, you know, cycling's still kind of my mental place my safe place to go uh, whether it's on a road bike or a mountain bike or I love riding with my family or by myself or with my friends it's been an important thing in my life starting from when I was 11 years old trying to rebuild my uh, shattered me and I think it's the greatest sport in the world I'm still a fan Uh, I watch the tour I watch bike racing I'm a a fan of the young kids the men and women doing it today and uh, I love it.
0: Scott, thank you so much for sharing the story with us. I
1: appreciate it. Ryan, I thank you very much as well.
0: Cyclist Scott Mercier of Basalt, Colorado. His new book is Win True, How You Win Matters On and Off the Bike. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with a performance that landed a Colorado Springs high school student $10,000. bucks. i am Ryan Warner, and you're with CPR News and KRCC.
5: Colorado's high elevation and dry climate make for good stargazing unless you're near a city that glows with light pollution, making it hard to see any but the brightest stars and planets. To view the Milky Way and other celestial bodies, head to fluorescent fossil beds or Dinosaur National Monument. These are among Colorado's international dark sky parks, joining communities like Silvercliff, Ridgeway, Westcliff, all of them distinguished by the deepness of their starry nights. A dark night benefits more than astronomers. Most living things depend on the daily cycle of light and dark to govern periods of activity and rest. And in humans, darkness triggers the release of the hormone melatonin, which encourages bodily recuperation. And as David White says in his poem, Sweet Darkness, the night will give you a horizon further than you can see. A Colorado Postcard from Colorado Public Radio with support from Sheets and Giggles, a Colorado company.
0: Poetry has the power to move people, especially when it is spoken aloud. That belief fuels Aiden Reed, a high school senior from Colorado Springs. She has just come in second in the National Poetry Out Loud competition. held Sunday. Reed attends Fountain Valley School of Colorado. This is the second year in a row she's made the national finals. And before we listen to her winning performance, a little of our chat from around this time last year. I'm curious if you remember the first poem that ever really stuck out to you.
3: Well, I think that poetry is just such a part of your life that you don't even know it, but uh, where the sidewalk ends, I grew up on shell silverstein shell Silverstein. So,
0: yeah uh, well, I am considerably older than you, and I love it <laughs> i'm I love that we have Shell silverstein in common. What do you remember about where the sidewalk ends resonating, and how old were you at that time?
3: I mean, at the time, I couldn't have been more than five, six years old, but uh, just being read to and being exposed to poetry in that sense. I mean, I also grew up reading Dr. Seuss, et cetera, just silly poems, silly rhymes. But now that I have the opportunity to evoke that kind of emotion in others through the recitation of poetry, I mean, that's just a beautiful opportunity.
0: You said something a little earlier, which is that kind of poetry is all around us in a way, mm-hmm. kind of marinating in it. What do you mean? Like, say more about that.
3: Well, I mean, there are so many different senses of poetry, and I think that the things that you really don't think about, I mean, life is poetry in the way that it can be a narrative, it can be a short story, it can be rhymes, it can be something silly. And really, in your head or even your thoughts, you're really creating a poem of your experiences and your memories. That's how I always think of it. And, I mean, it doesn't have to be this literary genius. It doesn't have to be this... Um, structured, this is the first stanza, this is the second stanza. It's just about creating an experience and evoking emotion through sensory experiences or even showing an audience how they can sense an experience.
0: This is fascinating because I think what I hear you saying is that our Mm self-talk could could be a form of poetry. Yeah. Uh, Tell us briefly how this competition works. Like, What are you judged on?
3: Mm-hmm. So you're judged on presence, uh, you know, how you conduct yourself. You're judged on your recitation of the poem. I mean, your understanding of the poem. Do you understand what you're saying? Are you helping the audience understand what you're saying to a certain extent? I mean, poetry can be, while it can be surface and it can be self-talk, it can also be very depth. It can be illusions. It can be thick. It can be heart of darkness, hard to get through, you know. Um, but... You're judged on basically all of that, and, you know, I think it's just, I don't even think about it as competing. I mean, it's just a great opportunity.
0: How do you see poetry fitting into your future aspirations? Like, what role will it play Mm -hmm. in your life going forward?
3: Well, I mean, I've always been into Model UN, argument, debate, stuff like that. And I think that poetry has really taken me on the narrative side of those things. I mean, public speaking is a beautiful opportunity and I mean, I love it. I crave it. I I really do see myself using it in the future. I mean, being able to talk to an audience and really get your get your point across, get what you're interested in across. And I mean, you need that in work. You need to be able to solidify your presence and be like, hey, I'm here, this is what I think, and I'm well-spoken. So listen.
0: Aiden Reed of Colorado Springs speaking with me last spring. Well, this year at the National Poetry Out Loud Finals, She recited This is Not a Small Voice by Sonia Sanchez.
2: This is not a small voice, you hear? This is a large voice coming out of these cities. This is the voice of Latanya, Kadisha, Shaniqua. This is the voice of Antoine, Daryl, Shaquille, running over waters navigating the hallways of our schools, spilling out on the corners of our cities. And no epitaphs spill out of their river mouths. This is not a small love, you hear. This is a large love, a passion for kissing learning on its face. This is a love that crowns the feet with hands, that nourishes, conceives, feels the water sails, mends the children, folds them inside our history, where they toast more than the flesh, where they suck the bones of the alphabet and spit out closed vowels. This is a love colored with iron and lace. This is a love initialed black genius. This is not a small voice you hear.
0: This is not a small voice by Sonia Sanchez, recited by Aiden Reed of Colorado Springs. She placed second in the Poetry Out Loud national competition and won $10,000. Her school gets $500 to buy poetry materials. It was a confusing, at times, frustrating school year for students at Adams City High School. And it ended with the state school board ordering the Adams 14 district to reorganize, which could result in its disappearance. Lost in the boardroom machinations were young people. So four Adams City High School students sat down with CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine to talk about their school and their lives.
4: We have like 1,700 kids here, almost. That's 17-year-old Cy Rennie. The thing he'll miss the most after he graduates this year is this. We're like known around the country for our wrestling here.
6: Wrestling—it's helped me so much, even with the grades. And plus, the coaching staff we have—they're all college graduates. They're all All-Americans, national champions.
7: Football games. Let's go! Homecoming, prom.
4: This is Kari, short for Carolina Loa.
7: Honestly, transferring to Adams City was one of the best things I've ever done.
4: She transferred from a school that was only focused on academics. She felt comfortable here. Sometimes it feels like family. That's something people on the outside don't often understand.
7: Because when I came to Adam City, I'm surrounded by people that, like, look like me, talk like me. We're, like, basically all Hispanics. Like, I'm surrounded by people that are just like me.
4: But it was also a tough year. We were all pretty freaked out on what was going to happen to us. In the fall, senior Ray Negrete remembers the State Board of Education stripped the district of its accreditation. The students heard about it on the news. They didn't know what it meant. Then earlier this year, a state panel recommended closing their school. Here's junior Crystal Esquibel.
7: All the things that just have been going on with the district have been so hard for us as students. Because it's like, what's our next step after this? Are we going to have to look for a different school? Or are we going to stay here and continue this ongoing battle? It made me feel pretty upset because it was like, I've been here most of my life. I grew up in this district and I graduate next year. So thinking, oh, wow, like what's going to happen to my credits, what is going to happen to my classes and stuff like that was just like brought me down a lot.
4: So why did this happen? The district has posted low test scores for more than a decade. State law requires the board to act when performance is low years in a row. In 2018, the State Board of Education ordered the working class district to be run by an outside manager. But the outside manager seemed to lead to more turmoil. Here's Ray. We've had three to four new principals in the past four years, so
7: it's like a lot of the teachers didn't want to stay because our management just keeps changing and changing.
4: A lot of their favorite teachers left. The kids say there is a lot of room for improvement, definitely, but they feel pretty satisfied with their education. And this thing about test scores, students say they're a superficial and simplistic way to judge a school that doesn't account for students' lives. First, Kari says, many students here work to help support their families.
7: And if they have to work and they're focused on other things, they're not focusing on being a student. And if they're not focusing on being a student, then how do you expect them to get a high score on a test? We're trying our best. It's not like we're failing those tests on purpose, you know.
4: Now they're concerned the state's recent order to reorganize the district will just cause more turmoil. The state also stripped the district's accreditation again. Sai talked to one of his teachers recently.
6: He said that they were going to hire several teachers for next year, but as soon as we lost that accreditation, they all disappeared. They did not want to deal with anything like that.
4: The students also say any attempt to carve up the district into other districts may cause students to scatter. It will cut into the heart of a community of people. <laughs>
6: I've practiced with the same guys for seven, eight years now. And they're like family. And like their family becomes your family as well. So we're all together. And it's it's hard to break that bond. If the school does split up, that bond is gone. I know kids are going to struggle so much with it. So I might even make it worse.
4: Students have this message for the State Board of Education. Here's Ray.
7: They don't know us as like, a people, you know, the state board doesn't come to our school and, like, sees what we do on a daily. If they were here, I would tell them to, like, come and see us and how we are for, like, even if it's just for a day. Like, if we were to have our prep rally before our homecoming,
4: they should see how much spirit we have. The district, meantime, plans to resist the reorganization effort, which is supposed to take more than a year. I'm Jenny Brundin, CPR News.
0: United Airlines is growing its flight training center in Denver. The expansion will include 12 new flight simulators to train 10,000 new pilots by 2030. Flying a plane is more than being at the controls. It's also a mental exercise, which is where Rob Strickland comes in. He's senior manager of human factors and pilot development for United. I caught up with him in March as he addressed a classroom of new pilots
6: We're not just about flying equipment, that equipment you bid on, from A to B. We fly what? We fly people, thank you very much. Not a trick question. We fly people from A to B. We fly their issues, their problems, their emotional support animals, their solutions from A to B. Very soon you'll fly Grandma to see your very first grandchild for the very first time.
0: But as head of Human Factors, it's not just passengers' humanity he recognizes,
6: it's pilots' too. If you've got training issues, if you've got family issues, personal issues, anything, between now and the time that you turn a wheel on IOE, I got your back.
0: IOE, initial operating experience.
6: Let's talk personal. Anybody married? Cool. Not required, but it's cool. How about kids? Great. Got dogs? Those hands go up way faster than they do for the kids when I ask about the dogs. It's like, oh, yeah, I know. How about cats? okay. (laughs) Those cat people just keep sneaking in (laughs) under the radar. One of these days, I'm going to go, cats? There's going to be no hands. I'm going to know the hiring process is locked down. (laughs) Okay, I'm kidding about that. Um, We hired you. We hired your significant others. We hired your kids, your dogs, <laughs> and we hired your cats. <laughs> but my point is, while you're here pursuing what is quite possibly the greatest career opportunity for a pilot on the planet, your personal life doesn't come to a screeching halt, does it? It's still kind of going on in the background. For the most part, you're going to keep it just going on in the background. And that's kind of what you do. But every once in a while, something of a personal nature that you didn't see coming, right? One of those sucker punches you just didn't know about, you couldn't have planned for. That comes up, don't fight with it on your own. Come see me. I'll be your corner man. We'll talk about what's right for you, what's right for your family, what's right for United. We'll chop it up a little bit, and then Come up with a plan, and if necessary, we'll pull you out of training, let you go handle your business, then we'll put you right back in so you can become a full-up round here as a United Airlines first officer.
0: The story behind the human factor's role at United begins in tragedy, something Strickland and I discussed after his remarks to the fledgling pilots. Rob, I'm really glad to meet you. It's great to meet you, Ryan. I understand that for United, a watershed event occurred December 28th, 1978. This is the crash of Flight 173 to Portland, Oregon. Eight passengers died and two crew members. Why was that a seminal event for the airline?
6: That was a seminal event because of what was ultimately determined as the causal factors. I mean, the airplane was perfectly flyable, but the crew was not. The crew had uh, some fixation on some things that weren't important at that time. Their ability to kind of think through it and uh, create a solution that, that was safe was considered at fault, so... The plane uh, ran out of fuel. The, fu- the plane ran out of fuel, it did.
0: While the folks in the cockpit tried to figure out something that wasn't really wrong.
6: Yes, there was a perception that there was something wrong. There was um, a gear light and the captain had some previous experience with a a gear light and so he was super focused on that gear light to the point where he could not hear the crew members warning that, hey, we're about to run out of fuel and that's a little bit more significant than the gear light. It turned out the gear was down, but the light was at fault.
0: And we've all experienced that in a car, when it tells us something is wrong, but it actually isn't.
6: Oh, absolutely. And we can get fixated on that because it's something unusual. It's something that we're not used to seeing, and we want to fix it right away. And that was the mentality of this captain, despite encouragement from the crew to focus on the right things. Because that um, resulted in, in the deaths of our customers, our passengers, we decided we got to do something about this. So that's considered the birthplace, the birth time of uh, crew resource management, CRM.
0: Crew resource management and human factors. That's in your title, human factors. What, what is a human factor?
6: Okay, so human factors deals with a, a broad array of things. It deals with the man-machine interface or the person-machine interface. Ergonomics. Is it ergonomic? Is it, it
0: logical?
6: Yes, that's exactly right. Is it comfortable? Does it take into account the limitations of a person physically, a person's cognitive ability, and uh, is it functional? Engineers like to um, design something that goes really fast and goes really high and really far, but can a person handle that? So human factors kind of comes into the engineering process and goes, oh, pump your brakes. Perhaps this is not going to be conducive to safe operations. It also deals with some of what we call the soft skills. How does a team? work well together within this environment. You can see my blind spots, I can see yours, so that we can be more effective collectively than I would be individually.
0: It was interesting, when you were talking to the new first officers, you asked if they were married, if they had kids, if they had a dog, if they had cats. And you essentially encouraged them not to leave their personal lives totally behind and become some sort of automaton. And it got me thinking, what it must mean if a pilot is going through a divorce. You know, if I slip up at work, Rob, I read something wrong on the radio, or I don't have a follow-up question. The stakes seem a lot higher if you're a first officer or a captain.
6: Absolutely. First officers and captains sign for the airplane. They sign for their crew. They also sign for the 162 people in the back of the airplane. And those people have gotten on with a level of trust that we just can't afford to violate. One of the things we ask our crew members to do at the beginning of every trip, and we encourage them to do at the beginning of every training event, is do a self-assessment. Am I fit for duty? And we have a a checklist, a little card, that calls out the three major components of that fitness for duty. Do I have um, any threats in the environment? Do I have any threats with my equipment something that doesn't quite look right and then um, the most recent addition is are there any personal threats are there any personal things that may be adding stress so that i come in with a a already heightened level of adrenaline a heightened level of uh, cognitive reduction so i need to let my crew member know my fellow uh, pilot know that you know what i may not be on my a-game I'm still good to go, but I may not be on my A-game, so let's talk a little bit about how you can help me raise my uh, level of performance.
0: But that seems like a really scary thing to admit, Rob.
6: It is, and pilots are typically superheroes in their own minds, and quite frankly, our flying public has layered that expectation on our professional pilots that, hey, you're perfect, you don't make mistakes, so therefore, it's been really difficult to get pilots to admit that, you know what? I am a human, so I need to lean heavily on my crew members.
0: That's the crew resource management.
6: That's the crew resource management. So that maybe individually, I'm not excellent, but collectively, we can be. We, we can't afford to be anything less than that.
0: Now, something else you told that new class of first officers is yes you're junior yes you're just starting your career with united but if you see something is wrong is amiss speak up and that means that the 20 or 30 year captain needs to be able to listen to the whippersnapper
6: (laughs) absolutely absolutely you know one of the terms that um, we're starting to use more and more on the flight deck is psychological safety. And that is the feeling that I can um, be vulnerable as a um, individual and take some social risks, bring in my opinion, and knowing that it's gonna be honored. It may not necessarily be selected as the path forward, but it's honored. And the higher we can raise that level of psychological safety on the flight deck, and not just between the two pilots that are flying, but also the flight attendants that are in the back that add value to the conversation, the dispatchers on the ground, when they feel like, hey, you know, I may not have the right answer. There's no stupid questions. I feel comfortable in this environment that this 25-year captain has established on the flight deck so that I can bring my entire conversation, bring my whole self, all of my uh, opinions and advocate in a safe environment, a psychologically safe environment. My
0: understanding is this is so important because there have been plane crashes associated with senior people not listening to junior people who actually had the right thing to say. Do you think that's true?
6: I, I think that's true. I think that those who are in charge, those who are in command, um, can kind of take off the cape and say, hey, listen, I don't have to have all the answers. I can still be in charge, I can still be in command, and not be right all the time. You've been a trailblazer in this field, 30 years
0: focused on human factors. What is a breakthrough moment that you had in understanding that interface between a pilot and the cockpit, an aha moment that you could tell us about in your
6: career? I would say the aha moment that I had, and probably the most significant um, contribution, was um, when I was involved in the, the 777 flight deck of the future. The 777 is a wide body jet. It's a wide body jet. It's my favorite, even though it's 25 years old now. I can't believe it's 25 years old. I'm dating myself. But I was able to be involved in the um, human factors aspect of how the checklist were designed so that they were more consumable by our pilot group. And so when a 777
0: is, is fired up today, I know that's not the right term, Rob, the checklist that they use is still the checklist you helped develop?
6: Uh, yes, sir, it is. And
0: give me an example of how you adapt a checklist to make it more human-friendly.
6: Well, the checklists are designed to um, create what we call a, a narrow focus for our flight crews, This is what you should be thinking about. This is why you should be thinking about it. And uh, eliminate as many of the questions a pilot may have about a particular non-normal scenario um, as possible. But then also leave just enough flexibility to recognize the fact that no non-normal situation is the same as the previous one, and there are always little nuances, and we count on the pilot's ability the pilot's experience to just kind of bring it on home, baby, and make sure that they have done all the right things to safely land the jet. Thanks for being with us. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you, Ryan.
0: Rob Strickland, for more than 30 years, the head of human factors and pilot development at United. We met in March. The airline plans a $100 million expansion of its pilot training center in Denver. <laughs> And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our crew.
5: Tyler Bender. Carl Bielik Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer.
4: Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher.
0: Matt hers Michael Hughes.
4: Carla Jimenez.
0: Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. This is CPR.